Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 8, our reading will start in verse 20 of that chapter and go through verse 17 of chapter 9. Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its blood, that is, uh, with its life, that is, its blood And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we approach your throne together this morning, and we worship you. 
And we acknowledge even as we see in this passage that You are holy, that You are separate from sin, that You judge sin. And we acknowledge and we rejoice that not only do You judge sin, yet You are also gracious. You are also merciful. And so as we look at this passage this morning, as we consider the events that took place after the flood and the covenant that You made with all flesh, I pray that You would help us to rejoice in, to glory in Your grace that is found here, Your mercy shown towards the whole world. And may that picture of grace and mercy point us to Christ even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, we uh, lived overseas for several years and uh, have traveled quite a bit. Um, and actually, since we came back from Russia, I have traveled a lot uh, internationally. And one of the things that has struck me in various places that I've been is uh, when you walk uh, into a public restroom, for example, and, uh, and, and you walk in and you see that someone's mopping it, right? They're, they're cleaning it up. And you think, well, that, that's great. I mean, that's exactly what they ought to do. We clean our bathrooms. They're, they're cleaning theirs. It's great. But then when you look and you see that they're mopping it, they're wet mopping it, and it, they're just making a big puddle. And so it looks clean and shiny and pristine for, for a second until someone comes traipsing across it, right, with their muddy shoes. And pretty soon you see that the, you know, for a minute it looked good, but then when someone walked back through it, it actually uh, may have ended up worse than it was at the beginning. And uh, so that's one of the dangers of, of uh, wet mopping your floor, so I just don't mop anything and we don't have to worry about that, right? That's not true. <laughs> But our passage today addresses the changes that God made so that after having mopped everything up, it didn't go back to the same condition it was in before. And so we're going to see, looking at uh, this passage today and the covenant that we find here and the words that God says, we're going to see that uh, God makes some significant changes going forward. And uh, we want to notice those today and, uh, and take note of what those are. We, we see, first of all, uh, we've broken up basically this passage into about three different paragraphs. And first of all, you see there the mercy of God on display. And if you remember what has happened before and what caused, uh, what brought about, what instigated the flood, you see uh, that God's mercy is all that uh, much greater as um, you know, the earth was uh, all mankind, you know, their, their intentions were always evil and, and things were getting worse and they were getting darker. And finally, uh, God decides that He's going to uh, wipe out all of mankind save one family, right? That, that there's, there's, there's such an evil across the world that it deserves judgment. And so he uh, decides to judge it, and yet he uh, shows favor, he shows grace uh, towards Noah, and Noah constructs the ark. And by that, uh, his family is rescued, his, uh, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and and animals are rescued by this. And, and so the rain comes and all the flood happens and everything is destroyed except for the ark and the people and the creatures inside the ark and those that can uh, swim in the water for, you know, months and months. And so um, they're the only ones who survive. Well, you get to the end. You come to the end of that and now the ark has come to rest and, and, and they've come out of the ark and, and everything's new. 
I can't imagine what it looked like. I've seen things after a flood, and I've seen what the ground looks like, and I've seen uh, what, what it, uh, you know, I, uh, small pictures that I've seen. I can't imagine the whole world being in this condition. But you see that when Noah steps off that ark, the first thing he does, we see there in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. He responded in appropriate worship. Can you imagine the joy after having floated for perhaps a year, after having been in a situation where uh, all of your neighbors, everyone you knew except your family, has now perished? It's tragic. You tried to warn them, and they didn't heed the warning, and now they've perished, and it's, and it's painful, and and yet they've been spared. They've been brought through it. And, and when he finally sets foot on dry ground again, after about a year's time, he responds in worship. He builds an altar. He takes some of these clean animals and he offers the clean animals. And he worships God. And that's exactly the right thing to do. You know, it's possible that we might be overwhelmed by the stress you know, I was, I was talking about this with uh, one of our smaller children uh, just yesterday or the day before, and the question came up, well, what, how, how did they build their house? You know, how did they build their first house after this? And I was thinking, well, did, you, did they take pieces from the ark, or did they, I, I don't know, right? But you, you, if you were thinking about rebuilding your life and really restarting all of humanity, how overwhelming would that be? And you might be, you know, making list after list after list. You might be anxious and trying to get to work or whatever, and we see that the very first thing that he does is offer worship. He is grateful to God that God has spared him. And I think there's a very simple point of application here for us that some of us need to worship more and more quickly than we do. Sometimes we, we escape something, you know, maybe, a, maybe an illness, you know, or maybe some... Uh, near miss on the highway or, or some situation you feared could go poorly, yet it goes well, and, and we kind of just go about our day, and we might say a quick, you know, thank you, Lord, and go on, when we ought to think, uh, this is Almighty God showing His hand of mercy towards me. Praise God. And I might want to tell you about it. I might want to worship the Lord. I think, I think we need to worship the Lord more quickly than we do, and we see that that is exactly what Noah does as soon as he gets off of the ark. And so we see his appropriate worship. And then secondly, we see in verse 21 a promise of patience, a promise of patience. Verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of Man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every live, living creature as I have done. There's a promise of patience. And wrapped up right in that verse is the reason why there needs to be patience on God's part. Man's heart is evil. The intention of his heart is always evil. And what, what that means what, what that tells us is that we're going to instigate. We're going to provoke God again. It won't be long. There's going to be another instigation, and yet God says, though you instigate me, though, though evil multiply on the face of the earth again, yet I make my promise that I will never again destroy all flesh as I have done in this way by means of a flood. 
I make this promise to you. And right now, this is just the internal uh, monologue that we see into God's heart, but, uh, but this is amazing that, uh, that God would make such a promise in the face of what He knows is going to be future provocation. And yet He says, yet I will be patient. I will be patient. A couple of points of doctrine that I want us to, to catch here before we go on. The fallen nature of man is far worse than some of us care to admit. I think we, we look around at each other perhaps and, and we see good people. We see good people in, 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 uh, around us in our community and perhaps in the world, and we think, well, I mean, yeah, man's a sinner, but what really does that mean, maybe? Because I see these great things, and the statement that God makes here, in the face of which He makes this promise of peace, is that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I don't, I don't think we perhaps want to recognize that uh, with the weight that it ought to have. That's the first point of doctrine about man's fallen nature. The second point of doctrine, God is holier than some of us are comfortable with. We can view God as grandpa in the sky, and, and grandpa's the one who gives you candy out of his pocket. Grandpa's the one who, who buys you a soda without your mom knowing, perhaps. I see some grandpas squirming uncomfortably because that's what they do, right? We, we kind of view God perhaps that way that, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, God hates sin, but that's sort of theoretical, right? No, it's not theoretical. God is actually all the way holy, and He, in His holiness, uh, if we were to consider Him as He is, actually, none of us could ever be comfortable with God's holiness while we are in this life. We might have a better or worse understanding. We might have a fuller or less full understanding of God's holiness. But the fact is, the revelation of His true holiness as it actually exists with us being in the flesh, with us having this sin nature, we would never be comfortable with that. And that is an understatement. God is all the way holy. He is all the way separated from sin. He is all the way devoted towards His own glory. He is entirely holy. And it's only that kind of holiness of God that makes us even able to comprehend how He could flood the entire earth and destroy all of humanity except for one family. If we don't understand God in that kind of holiness, we can make no sense of Him being able to judge the earth in that capacity. And so God is holier, perhaps, than some of us are comfortable with. And actually, ultimately, if we were to see it as it is, none of us would be comfortable with it in this life. And that's the, the, the amazing thing about this story is that though God is that holy and though man is that fallen, yet God stays His own hand. He restrains His own hand of judgment. And this, of course, is anticipating for us the gospel, right? Right here in this verse, He says, man's heart is evil from his youth, and yet I will show patience. Not because you are worthy of patience, not because you're not as bad as, uh, you know, as all that. No, yet I will show patience. And, of course, that's the only hope that we really have. That's the hope that the Bible points us towards. As we, as we go on reading, we get to the Ten Commandments, for example. We have the, revel the, the revelation of, of God's character and the expectation that that is for us as His creatures, that we are to behave in that way, that we are to have no other gods before Him. 
We're to worship as He says. We are to honor His name, not lie, not steal. All of those things in the Ten Commandments, that's a revelation of God's own character. And as we see His character revealed and as we study it, we realize it's a high standard, unimaginably high. And the more we look at it, the more we read through Scripture, we see the revelation of man's own character and how man again and again falls short of that. And so we deserve God's judgment, and yet God stays His own hand of judgment. Here He does it with this word of promise in this context. Ultimately, we know when it gets to Christ, He stays His own hand of judgment upon us by sending His own Son, who would be the obedient one, who would be the the last Adam, the one who would represent His people. He would obey in their place, and He would take God's punishment in their place, so that by faith in Christ, we have forgiveness. By faith in Christ, the hand of God, the the judging hand of God is stayed off of us, and instead it is expended upon His Son, so that we have life. The only hope we have, the only hope we have is faith in Christ. That's That's the only way we can escape that judging hand of God. He keeps it at bay himself by redirecting his wrath and his judgment towards his son. But this takes time, doesn't it? I've, I've just snuck ahead in the story. I've moved on from, from Genesis chapter 8 and chapter 9. I've gone on into the New Testament already. But it takes time for that to come about. And so we see a third statement here, a statement about a secure environment. Look at verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, we may wonder why that's there. What's the, what's the big deal? I mean, yes, seasons come about. They come and go, and, and they're reliable and all that. But here's, here's what I believe is the reason for God making that statement, making that determination of what He's going to do. It's because He's going to stay His hand of judgment for a period of time. He said He will never again judge the, the world by flood, destroying all flesh by flood, but there will be a judgment to come. That's going to happen. And in order for the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 to come onto the scene and deliver His people, it takes time for that to come about. And so what God is doing here is He is preparing the environment, just like when He created in six days all of the earth and, and set it up so that everything would work, and then he placed man in the middle of it. He, he prepared the environment, and then he put the man there. This statement right here is about God preparing the environment, that over a period of time, because there is regularity in the seasons, because man can flourish, and we can grow crops, and, and, and all of those sorts of things, we can hunt animals, and we have a, a, a regular uh, environment that produces life Because of that, time will pass and there will be a man who will be uh, called out of Ur of the Chaldees and he will be given promises. And and over time, that man will become a nation. And that nation will receive uh, God's name and will receive more and more promises about who this seed of the woman is going to be, is going to deliver the people. And it will take time for that nation to bring forth ultimately the son, the seed of the woman, the last Adam, Jesus himself. So that there has to be what's stated here in verse 22. There has to be the appropriate environment to bring about 
Christ ultimately. And so God says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish this world in such a way that I can work redemption in it. And so it must be stable, and it is stable. It must be regular. It must be something that will uh, produce food, produce life, and cause the flourishing of humanity. And that's indeed exactly what he does. And so he's establishing here the environment that will eventually, ultimately, bring about the seed of the woman promised back in Genesis chapter 3, who will do battle with the serpent and who will win the victory for his people. So that environment is right here. And so we perhaps read past these verses and we think, you know, seed time and harvest and what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it's God preparing the environment that will bring about redemption. It's a very, very important statement. And so that's the mercy of God. We see a God working great things. This is, these are people who have just come off the ark. We've seen the picture into God's heart. But next, uh, we want to talk about the provision of God, the provision of God. Now, you'll notice at the beginning of uh, chapter 9 there in verse 1, and then at the end of this paragraph in verse 7, this is a, a figure of speech that's, uh, that's called bookends. It has other names. It's called bookends. He talks about be fruitful and multiply. He, he gives the command, he gives the instruction, he gives the blessing, be fruitful and multiply. We've heard that before, haven't we? This isn't the first time we've read this. Again, I, I encourage you that as we're studying through Genesis, just be reading through it. You don't have to read through it in one um, sitting if you don't want to. You could, maybe a couple sittings, or maybe just read a chapter a day, but just be going around and around as reading, and you'll start to recognize these patterns because God blessed Adam and said, be fruitful and multiply. And now here we are with Noah on the scene, and God says the same thing, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There are only eight of you. There's one family. You're going to populate the whole world. Now, why, why is this important? Well, for numerous reasons, but one of them is because of a, a belief in a surrounding uh, the surrounding culture. There's a, an Akkadian text uh, from like uh, something like the 18th century uh, B.C., and it's called um, uh, Atrahasis. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. I can spell it, and it has weird dots in wrong places, so I'm not sure how to say all of it. But it's a story of a flood account, and what's interesting about that, there are flood accounts all over, right? But what's interesting about the Atrahasis uh, story is the reason why the gods in that story sent the flood. It was because humans had spread out so much that we were so loud they couldn't get any rest. They couldn't get any sleep. That was their motivation. And everyone with kids says amen, right? They spread out so much and it was so loud the gods couldn't get any sleep so they finally threw a fit and they sent a flood, okay? That's the motivation. That's why the, the, the gods in this, in this pagan understanding why they sent uh, the, the flood. And so there were too much humanity, so they wipe out humanity. But, uh, but one family, one guy escapes, he gets through it. And uh, just is very similar to the Noah story. But it's interesting, after the flood account, after that uh, pagan version of Noah ends up, you know, uh, on dry land and everything else, the gods institute new laws. They're going to make a certain percentage of the women um, sterile. Uh, they're going to um, they're going to provide uh, cult prostitutes 
to minimize the birth rate. They're going to increase infant mortality. Right? That's, that's what they do. That's the plan they came up with. Having wiped out all of humanity in this, in this pagan account, now the result is we're going to put things in place to limit humanity because the, the number of people was the problem. They were so noisy. Overpopulation, overcrowding, that was the issue. Right? You can hear that today, by the way. Pay attention to the news. That's what's being pushed. They're not reading the Atrahasis epic but they're pushing the same kind of idea. But contrast that with what God says to Noah. Noah gets off the boat, and God tells him twice, be fruitful and multiply and fill the place up. It's in direct contrast. It's in the face of what the pagan religion would have taught. It's in the face of, by the way, what our world teaches, what our pagan culture teaches on the topic. All the warnings about overcrowding, all the fears about having too many babies, all of this kind of stuff, and yet God's word to Noah was be fruitful, multiply, fill the place up. There's an application here. Have lots of babies. On one hand, you think I'm joking because I have a lot of kids, and you think, you know, I just I kind of push for that. This is why. This is why it is, it is a, 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 a value of Christian family to multiply like this. Have lots of babies. Don't be afraid. God will provide for you. The church will help you as means of God providing for you. So have lots of babies. I appreciated this, this uh, quote from Carl Sandburg. He said, a baby is God's opinion that the world should go on. Did you know that every baby that exists, God created? Special creation. It's not purely a biological function. It's not some biological determinism. God created that baby, and so I I appreciated that statement. So, we have here uh, provision for the propagation of life. Secondly, we we have a a provision uh, for the sustenance of life, all right? Verses 3 and 4, I got to talk about babies, which I love to talk about, and now I get to talk about meat, which I also love to talk about and eat. Look at verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood in it right? So now for the first time you have permission given. If you remember back in the garden, all of the green things, all the plants, all the fruit, all the vegetation, that was all yours to eat. Now we have the inclusion of meat, right? That now we get to eat meat, okay? So I'm glad I live nowadays and not before that. I've always wondered, you know, how much of the earth ate meat anyway, you know, because it's not like people were obedient in, in, in any other way. Like, why But I don't know. But here we have specific permission by God. He says, eat meat. But there are some restrictions, some limitations. Don't don't eat it like you're an animal, like you're just chewing it and eating with the life still in it. It needs to be all the way dead, meaning it needs to be exsanguinated. The blood needs to be gone. So don't don't eat the blood, right? So you're, you're you're not an animal. You haven't turned into an animal. You get to eat the animals, but under appropriate boundaries. And so we have that first indication there of not eating uh, meat with the blood in it. So we have God's provision for the propagation of life, for the sustenance of life, and then thirdly, for the protection of life. And you can see that kind of all throughout this paragraph here. Look at verse 2. 
The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. There's a, there's a, a, a dominance that's perhaps even greater than it was before this, that, that now all the animals are ours. They are given into our hand. But he goes farther than that, and he says in verses 5 and 6, your lifeblood, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast, right? So you'll get into the laws later on when you're reading in uh, the Mosaic Law. You'll read about if there's, a, if there's an ox and he's given to goring, right? He's done this before and he, and he gores your neighbor. There's a massive penalty on that. A massive. Now, if the ox has never gored anyone or anything else and it does it for the first time, you don't receive the penalty. The ox does. But if you know he's given to goring and you loan him out to your neighbor, well, I hope he doesn't gore this guy like he did the last guy, right? You're on the hook, right? Not only the beast, but you are also on the hook. And so we see here your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is desirous to protect human life. And when it comes to a criminal, when it comes to someone who has murdered, that person, having been proven indeed with two or three witnesses and following everything up and all of the the appropriate uh, a determination of what is true, that person should be put to death. That's what he's saying here. And so we have the idea of a, an execution of justice, and of course that's very different than what we read about before. You remember we read before about uh, boasting about, uh, I killed a man because he struck me. Remember we read about that? That's retribution. That's different. It's a, it's a violent response. This isn't a violent response. This is the execution of justice because life is valuable and this beast or this person is such a person that determines life doesn't matter. And so you put that person to death. So his shedding of blood is repaid by his own shedding of blood. And I think, uh, I think we, this is hard to take, first of all, And as you look on into the Mosaic Law, you can see how it's developed much further, that there are all kinds of checks and balances put in there. If it was just an accidental death, then the guy runs to the city of refuge, and there are certain things that take place because he didn't mean to. The axe handle just flew off, and the guy died. Like, he wasn't trying to kill the guy, as opposed to the murderer, right? That guy, once it's proven, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that person needs to be executed because, because... Human life is that valuable. Do you hear what's going on? There is a life being taken because human life is that valuable. The next victim's life is more valuable than the murderer's life. We need to, we need to think uh, carefully on these topics. I think sometimes we, we become compassionate and think in those sorts of ways when that needs to be put in its place put in its place. And so, we must, this is the application for us, we must protect innocent human life. We must protect it. And so, we rejoice at the overturn of Roe v. Wade for that reason. We rejoice in it unabashedly. We support CareNet for that very reason, unabashedly. 
And if you know a pregnant woman who is considering abortion, we want to be of help. We want to be of help to to protect that innocent life in that womb. Now, it may be, it may very well be that 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 woman considering that is in your life so that that child can be yours. I've I've had many dreams, and I I have scared my wife with these dreams uh, over the years. I've scared my wife in a lot of ways, and this is, this is one of, the, one of the, 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 the gentler ones. But when we were in our childbearing years in Chicago, and we, you know, we, we, had, we had four kids in, you know, very quickly, and, uh, but I would have these dreams of being out in the city doing whatever, riding the bus, walking down the street, whatever, and this woman would run up to me, and she's disheveled, and she's scared, and she's like, I'm in danger, or I can't take care of this, but would you take this baby? Well, the answer is always yes, right? Yes, you take the baby. You'll figure it out later. Like, you know, yeah, what are we going to feed the baby when you get home? I don't know. What's your wife going to say when you get home? I don't know. Like, how's this all going to work? I don't know, but we're going to take the baby, right? You take the baby, and we'll take the baby. I will take that baby if, if you know a woman in that, in that position. We need to be that way. We as a church need to be that way. And I think we are that way, but we are about protecting human life. And this verse here is one of the key verses that drives us that direction. So we see a provision in that, in that uh, a statement that of God speaking to Noah, blessing his sons and providing uh, for the propagation of life, for the sustenance of life and the protection of life. And thirdly, we get to the covenant. We get to the covenant. Now, we, this is the first time... Really, we're going to have the idea of covenant be developed in any kind of way. Back in chapter 6 and verse uh, 18 was the first instance of the word covenant. It's not developed there. If you look over at 618, uh, this is before the flood, but I will establish my covenant with you, right? But it's not explained. It's not developed. This is the first time in chapter 9 we have the idea of covenant being developed more fully. What is a covenant? Well, a, a, a simple definition is given by Brown and Keel. It's uh, a covenant is a solemn agreement with oaths and or promises which imply certain sanctions or legality, right? So it's like a, a solemn legal agreement, a binding agreement that has certain oaths and certain promises connected to it. That's the idea of a covenant. So a marriage is a covenant, and that's discussed later on in Scripture. It's a, it's a covenant relationship. And so we use the idea of covenant. We just don't use the word all that often. But I, I want to focus on covenant as we have it right here, right? So it's, it's uh, when you look at a covenant, when you're trying to understand, you see who the parties are, right? We talked about marriage. Who's involved in the marriage covenant? Well, husband and wife, right? Joe down the street is not a part of it. You know, though, though the parents have a, a great deal of investment, yet the, the covenant itself is, is between husband and wife. Who are the, the, the parties here? Who are the concerned parties in ours? What's amazing about this one, it's not a specified group. First of all, you've got God on the one hand, right? God says, I will make this covenant with you. I will establish, verse 9, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that's with you, birds, livestock, every beast of the, of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So the covenant is between not God and an individual. It kind of starts off that way, but it's a covenant between God and Noah and Noah's family and all people and 
all the birds and all the, all the beasts and all the animals, every living thing. It's a covenant between God and every living thing. It's a very unusual covenant. It's very, very broad. It's between God and all flesh on the earth, as he puts it down in verse 17. So those are the parties that, that are involved. So that means you're involved. That means I'm involved and your cat is involved, right? Everything is involved in this covenant, okay? That's the first thing. The second thing, we're looking here at a unilateral promise. Unilateral, coming from one side. God makes the promise. He doesn't say, all right, Noah, here's the deal. If you will do these things, then I will do these things. That's a pretty common type of covenant. This is not that. This is God saying, all right, here's the deal I'm going to make with you. I'm going to do these things. He promises that he will do these things. Now, there are some obligations. There are some instructions. There have already been instructions for, for Noah, but it's not, a, it's not an aspect of keeping that covenant. It's instructions given because God is God, but the covenant is a binding promise that God, for his part, says what he will do, period. So it's very interesting. It's not a normal kind of agreement. It's just a, a promise, I'm going to do this for you, period, right? So it's, a, it's unilateral. And there's a doctrinal point that we need to bring up here, and that's that God never fails to keep his promises. When, when there's a, 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 you know, a covenant between two people, this is part of the reason why um, the, the stability of our culture is, is going down in some ways, because, because we, we uh, are less likely now to keep our covenant agreements than we were 100 years ago, perhaps. And so when you have a man and a woman who, who are vowing and they're, they're making this covenant together that they're going to, to be married through thick and thin… Well, either one of them is, you know, liable to break that covenant in so many cases, right? So it's only, the covenant is only as strong in that kind of a bilateral agreement. It's only as strong as, as the parties keeping their covenant, their side. What about a unilateral covenant? What about this statement where God says, I will do this thing? God is perfectly reliable. Therefore, that covenant will stand. It will last. He keeps His promises and if we learn anything from Scripture, it's that man will let down his end of any bargain with God. Read your Old Testament. Read your New Testament, and you will see man will let down his end of the deal. And that's why it's so important for us to recognize when God makes a unilateral promise of what he will do. There's a point of application here that, that takes us a little bit far from our text here, but hang with me. This doctrine has particular relevance when it comes to the question of whether a person can at one time be a genuine Christian and then at some later point in time, no longer be a genuine Christian. In other words, this relates to the topic of whether a Christian can lose his salvation. Right? When we think about how Scripture talks about this, what Scripture says about man, what Scripture says about God, if the salvation in any way depended upon the faithfulness of the person, to uphold his end of the deal, then that person would lose his salvation. That's the nature of man. We will drop the ball. But you and I can praise God that he has taken it upon himself 
alone to keep us secure in our salvation so that no person can lose his salvation. A familiar passage on this topic is John chapter 10, verses 27, 28, and 29. Reminds us of Jesus' words there, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So who is given the task? Who is given, who is given the job of securing a Christian's salvation, of retaining it through all the difficulties of life, through all the, uh, all the things that might be faced? A person who is a Christian, who has the job of keeping that person a Christian? Jesus says he does. Jesus says God does. It is a unilateral promise. And so, no, it's not possible for someone to be a genuine Christian and at some later point no longer be a genuine Christian because God keeps His promises. So praise God for His sustaining and preserving work of raising us up in salvation on that last day, as Jesus says in John chapter 6. It's His work. It's a promise He makes. And that brings us finally to the covenant sign, which uh, you learned about in Sunday school as a child, and it sticks with you, and that's the reason for the covenant sign. Look at verse 12. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Was there anything surprising in there to you? We, we tend to read that and we tend to think, oh, the, 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 you know, when I see a rainbow, that's right, it's to remind me that God said He promised He would never again destroy all mankind, all flesh, by a flood. It's to remind me. What do we read in the passage? This is surprising. God says, I put it there to remind me, says God. Now, why is it God would need a reminder? Now, on one hand, of course, God needs no reminder ever. He, he never forgets anything. He knows all things. He doesn't need to be reminded of His promises. He keeps His promises. He always follows through. So He doesn't need to be reminding like I need to be reminding because I forgot. Right? Why did I miss that meeting? Why did I forget about that thing that I was supposed to hand in? Why did I? Because I forgot, right? God doesn't need a reminder like that. So on one hand, God needs no reminder whatsoever. But on the other hand, God is exactly the one who needs the reminder. What do I mean? Because we provoke Him to His face all the time. Humanity is always provoking God. We're, we're pushing we're sinning. We're rebelling against Him. Now, I may not be talking about you specifically sitting in the chair right here, but I'm talking about humanity and what we do, but all too often, it's me. 
whether it's you or not, provoking God to His face so that He would be right to judge us. He would be right to squash us where we are, but He doesn't. And why isn't it that He doesn't? Because He said He wouldn't. He said He wouldn't. And every time that rainbow appears, it's the reminder, yes, they deserve squashing. I'm not going to squash them. They deserve judgment. They deserve the flood all over again. They're just like the people before Noah. But I'm not going to do it, says God, because I said I wouldn't. And that bow is a reminder in the sky every time we see that, reminding God as it were, because He's the offended party. That's right. I'm not going to execute judgment because I said I would not. I will withhold it for a time, and I will deliver it in a particular way. But I will not revisit the flood on them because I said so, says the Lord. This idea of the bow, there's a lot of speculation amongst scholars. Have you ever wondered why the rainbow is the, is the sign of this covenant? I do too, and I don't know the answer. But there's a lot of speculation about the idea that the bow is a weapon of war. It's the same word. And where is it? It's been hung up. It's been hung up. He will not use it. He will not use it. It's been hung up. It's it's uh, been taken out of circulation. There's also speculation among scholars that when a bow is turned that way, where does the arrow point? It points at him, right? So if he were to use the bow again, where would it shoot, right? It's, it's kind of an indication of his covenant promise, <clears throat> excuse me, his covenant promise that he has made that he will not destroy us in that way again. And so there's application for us at this point too. Praise God for what that rainbow reminds us of still today. God will never again judge the world in a global flood. That's not how things will be judged. The flood has happened. We read about it. It's awful. And it will not happen again. He is staying His hand of judgment on a world that deserves to receive that judgment in full. Praise God for that. But there's a point of doctrine here that we need to be reminded of. The promise holds true for how long? while the earth remains. The promise is made, the promise lasts while earth remains. But we have to keep in mind that there will come a day when the earth is no more. Peter talks about the fact that, yes, it won't be flooded again, but there will come a time when there will come judgment again, destruction of this earth, and by what Peter calls fire and destruction and judgment. That day is coming. It hasn't happened yet, but that day is coming out there. And so the point of application, we need to prepare for that day. I was reminded just this morning of, of a story, and uh, it took me a while to remember where it was from, but it's from Jane Eyre. If any of you have read Jane Eyre, uh, that's, a, that's a very enjoyable book, even for men to read. I had to read it in college for a... Thank you. <laughs> Mrs. Travis liked that one. I had to read it in college, and and various of the guys were like, oh, we're reading this girl's book about a girl, you know. Well, then you read it, and it's fabulous. Read it. It's great, right? But there's this this instance that happens early in her life, and she ends up being orphaned, and she's staying with the Reed family, whose relatives, I think uh, it's her Aunt Reed, who's really mean. And and to uh, to punish Jane, she will send her into this red room that's like this scary room that reminds Jane of hell. 
That's what she imagines. Like she just she stays in there. She gets locked in there all night. It's terrible, right? Well, her, her aunt is telling her, you know, Jane, you know what happens to uh, rebellious little girls like you when they die. They go to hell. And so what should you learn from that, Jane? Jane says, well, I shall stay very healthy and never die. That's her plan, right? (laughs) We laugh at that because it's absurd. It's a legitimate thing that a seven-year-old would say, but it's absurd, right? We need to be prepared for that day of judgment because she could stay as healthy as she wanted. There will come a day when she will die. You and I have been able to dodge this flood judgment, this whole point. The flood judgment will never happen again, but judgment will. And we need to be prepared for it. Let's not be like the scoffers in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Peter talking about this very story and bringing it to bear in his day. He says, uh, these, these people, these scoffers, this is what they say. Where is the promise of His coming? You keep talking about this judgment. You keep talking about the Lord returning. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That almost sounds like they were reading from this verse. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, but they were making the wrong application. They were saying, see, it's, it's continued like this always, so therefore it will continue like this forever. And that is faulty thinking. Just because it has continued like that till now doesn't mean that it will not change in the future. Peter goes on, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Right? It seems like it's been going on forever this way, but that's a blink in God's eyes. Do you want to play with God's time? You want to bet? You want to count on God's time? Just because the end with its judgment has not yet come does not mean that it will never come. On the contrary, God is simply being very patient. And for this, we can praise God. Sometimes we struggle that it takes God so long, it seems like, to to give justice, perhaps. If we've been wronged, we think, Lord, how long? Or we're suffering, and we suffer a long time, and we think, Lord, how long? When will you bring deliverance? When will I I see victory in this area? When, When, Lord? How long? Peter's perspective is different. When you observe how long it is, how long it's taking the Lord to render judgment in this situation, how how long it's taking the Lord to to bring this this evil earth to a close, and and, and you're you're, you're tempted to, to fuss at the Lord a little bit. I've been suffering a long time, Lord. What does Peter say? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise of coming judgment, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God delaying to render the verdict, God delaying to bring the judgment is His mercy towards you. Now, Christian, as you are suffering through this, as you're the one who's been dealing with the wrong against you, or you've been dealing with illness, or you've been dealing with this unfair situation, and you think, Lord, bring it to a close. One of the reasons God has not brought it to a close is because He is patient, and He is 
He is waiting for all to come to repentance. So we can rejoice even in the midst of that suffering, even in the midst of that point of difficulty that I would just rather escape. I'd rather be out of it, yet God is being merciful. And He is moving slowly even there. Perhaps He's he's going to bring a family member to Christ during that time. Perhaps he's, He's going to work in some other way. He's going to teach me something I could never have learned otherwise. But God is at work, even though the time be long. And so, Christian, be encouraged about that. If you're not a Christian, it's a warning. Yes, God is patient, and there will come a time when that will be ended. There was a time at the end of Noah's preaching, as he was finishing up the ark and putting the final touches on it, he'd been preaching for all this time to all of his neighbors, and not a one of them responded. There came a time when the door was shut. But God is patient. And the door is open right now. And so my, my plea with you this morning is that you would respond and trust in Christ right now. God has said He will stay His hand of judgment, placing it upon His Son for all of those who are in Him. And you have the opportunity to be in Him by faith. If you'll trust in Christ, you'll find that the punishment has been placed on Him. And you're safely delivered through the flood as Noah was in the ark. There's no other place to shelter from the flood of God's wrath. And that door is open to you right now. In the wake of the flood judgment, God obligates Himself by making a unilateral covenant to make this world into a place where the regular pattern and rhythm of seasons would ensure a good environment for man to thrive and an increased food supply to sustain him. The judgment man deserves will be withheld from the earth to a future point and will take a different form. And God reminds man, and He reminds Himself, of the truth of this by placing that rainbow in the sky. In short, God establishes an environment that will ensure human flourishing for generation after generation after generation to prepare the way, to prepare the place so that the Messiah can come in that seed of the woman who has himself taken on and defeated the serpent on our behalf. And so when we read through this story, this isn't just uh, about what uh, Noah did first and second and third when he got off the ark or some things that God said. This is about our redemption. This is God preparing the way for our redemption. And we praise God for that. I praise God for his patience, that he hasn't sent the judgment yet, that the door is still open. And you and I, all of us Christians, can look back and, and praise God that He kept the door open for you to make it in. And you parents can praise God that He has kept the door open for your kids to make it in. Praise God for His patience, for His mercy. Praise God for His unilateral promise of what He will do, that He will withhold judgment He will withhold judgment, and He will expend it another way. And praise God most of all for Jesus, who is the one upon whom that ultimate judgment for everyone who is in Him was given so that we get to escape through, so that we get to be those who survive through that flood of judgment in Christ, safe, at peace with God. Praise God for that.
And if, if you don't know Christ, if this is not, uh, if this isn't you, if you're not in that ark, hop in today. Trust in Christ. Believe in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your great patience. Thank You for Your great mercy that is shown even in this account that we read about the flood where so many on the earth bore the full brunt of judgment by flood. And yet You graciously rescued Noah. You graciously rescued his family. You graciously rescued those animals. And then You made a covenant that really is a covenant with all living creatures and you. That you would give time. That you would give seasons, regular seasons. That you would withhold the execution of your judgment. That it would never happen in a flood like that again, but that it would happen in a different fashion. Thank you that you established the environment that brought about our Lord Jesus. And we praise you and thank you for him. May we go forth today and give you thanks and give you praise for your grace, for your mercy, for your gentleness toward us. And may you draw many to yourself, even through this word, even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a family up front who would love to pray with you as soon as the service is over. If you are a child and you've done the uh, uh, blast zone, you can have that checked over here. Otherwise, I want to close with these words of Paul from Galatians where he reminds us, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you're dismissed.